2: podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at org. Hi everyone, this is the Beyond Zero Emissions community show. Tonight we're going to the Energy Summit and we'll grapple with a new thing called the NEG. It's the National Energy Guarantee, and it was announced one week after this summit. There was not a word breathed of it there, and yet the government must have been cooking it up, and it's a new way through to get reliable, affordable, and low-emissions energy, apparently. Though everyone's saying, we'll wait for more detail. The Labor Party's given in-principle support, but they said we need much more detail, and that's true. I felt at the uh, summit like a person who'd wandered onto the set of ben-hur some epic show and i'm just a little person holding a spear in the corner it was fascinating and i felt overwhelmed by people with such so many billions to spend on energy and really not much thought for climate change no surprises there i guess They all agreed later to the National Energy Guarantee. Not all, but some of them, they came out with some sort of support. Andy Vasey, who'd been quite critical at the summit of the gas policy and lack of certainty, he said the National Energy Guarantee will provide investment certainty. Origin Energy uh, backed it. And they said they're planning to lift their renewable generation to 25% by 2020. Well, that's not far away. So Origin Energy, 25% of their energy will be from renewables. That's pretty good. On the financing side, however, uh, Rob Coe from Morgan Stanley wasn't really so sanguine. He said, unless the NEG is legislated with prescribed targets, and that's what we'd had with the renewable energy target and the clean energy target, all of these are being swept away, unless it's legislated with those... Fewer projects will enter the market and those that do will face higher financing costs. So that's why I think this neg could just lead to more delay. Uh, One of our favourites on this show, Oliver Yates, he's the former head of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, he said... The policy appears far too low in ambition in relation to the climate change targets. It takes no consideration of Australia's carbon budget. And that's the big problem. The carbon budget, the urgency of radically cutting down emissions, was not really in the air at all at this conference. Um, John Grimes from the Australian Solar Council, he commented on the National Energy Guarantee, and he said... I think this perpetuates uncertainty. It puts sand in the saddlebag of the renewable energy sector. And that's what got me. At the conference, there was nobody really from the renewable energy sector. Everybody there was a chief. There were energy chiefs. There was Andy Vasey, just sitting a meter away from me. AGL, Origin, Santos, and Shell. The political chiefs were there like Josh Frydenberg, Bill Shorten and Jay Weatherall from South Australia. The chief scientist, Dr Alan Finkel was there and the opinion making chiefs, you know, the cultural guardians, the gatekeepers like the editor of the Financial Review and the head of the Business Council of Australia and the chief of ACOS, they were there. But community wasn't there and really big time renewable energy wasn't there. What they we're struggling with i mean it really i think the financial review really called this summit to once and for all put everything out on the table in the public uh, to deal with what they call a trilemma this is you can get this in the uk and in europe too people talk about it as a trilemma to continue providing energy that is reliable affordable and which will get emissions down in line with the annoying Paris commitments because really this everybody who may put their hand on their heart and said oh I support the elders past and present pay my respects to the elders past and present and I support the Paris climate agreement and commitments well I just sort of felt it was just a side thing it was just something you say. This trilemma, they mainly want to get affordable energy. They want to get the prices down because it's very unpopular, not only for us, the consumers, but for the big industrial consumers who are, crying really out for lower gas prices and lower electricity prices Um, so that affordable is important and reliable there was a lot of i think they put up a straw man about reliable they kept talking about the blackouts in south australia the intermittency of renewable power now we on beyond zero emissions we've been talking about this for years the intermittency of wind and solar. It sorts itself out over the grid and now there's battery storage. We've had Andrew Blaker's talking on this program uh on the Friday programme talking about, you know, the pumped hydro schemes, which would be fantastic. You you would just um dispatch more energy into the system from your stored energy in the pumped hydro. And there about Bill Shorten mentioned this. There's twenty two thousand Uh, places that are suitable for pumped hydro you know you wall off a valley you make a a dam and then you pump in the daytime with the solar energy you pump the water up to the top dam and when you need it at night you you cascade it down from that dam to a lower dam making energy just like the snowy hydro which is way in the future but you could have a lot of these little dams all around andrew blakers said you'd only need 20 or 30 of those to supply the whole grid with enough energy so andrew blakers wasn't there they didn't have any intellectuals there no people who are doing studies like that who are the kind of people we interview on this radio show so all the chiefs were there and on the first day i was a bit intimidated They started talking about the public in a disparaging way, I thought. This is really totally my opinion, but a woman from uh, Shell, and she'd just recently come back from, I think, managing the tar sands business in Canada, and she was talking about the community, how public perception had to be massaged a little bit how the states that had shut out coal seam gas with a moratorium they were just misguided citizens that they just needed to get the right information that it wasn't uh, toxic or dangerous to frack for gas on land and that they would just be much more in cooperation with them Uh, and i I thought i thought that was disparaging because i've met those owners on farmers and and I, I I just kept thinking while she was talking and while Origin Energy was talking, I was thinking, what about George Bender? I remember the day we met in Melbourne for a sort of memorial for George Bender, who was a farmer. He took his own life because he just got so tired, I think, fighting off the coal seam gas companies. And George Bender's name was in my mind, not in their mind. In their mind, it's just massaging the public perception. And I've met people in Gloucester, for example, who were fending off AGL gas, and those people talk about well-informed. They had telephone book-sized folders, you know, full of information to prove that AGL was not safe to frack in their valley, in Gloucester Valley. It was outrageous, really, how it went on. So let's dive into a little taste from the Energy Summit that I've recorded and brought for you. Chief Scientist Dr Alan Finkel pretended that our energy system was a patient in the emergency department of a hospital. He talked about the remedies he had to offer and he said we could soon be on a path to low emissions. Dr Finkel.
0: Just to wrap up then, um, like all good physicians I've got to provide the patient discharge notes, Basically, we've tried to get everybody in this national electricity market to focus on outcomes and enablers rather than inputs and outputs. So, security, we've mentioned a lot of things to do with inertia and um, more effective planning, like start capability, reliability is the things i mentioned. uh, demand response, strategic reserves, uh, generating reliability obligations. Uh, Lower emissions comes from having a vision of where you want to go. get there in a the coordinated fashion, the trajectory, the mechanism and the notice of closure. And lowest cost will come from many, many sources. Again, as I said, just going back to coal is not the solution. We live in a very different transformed world. I'll show you this slide of disruptive technology. If I had a magic wand that could make climate change disappear, it wouldn't help the national electricity market. The revolution is underway and cannot be stopped. Finally the prognosis I'm fairly confident. Three years from now I expect full international interest. The yeah. I don't want to see the names people in the papers again. Yeah. Thank
2: you. Thank you, Dr. Pinkle. I'm from Radio Three cr Look, I think we're still in the emergency room. We're still bleeding carbon. I'd just like to know in terms of the urgency of the commitment we made at Paris how are we going to reduce emissions? Because this is such a sanguine outcome in your talk, and everyone wants a good news story, but really how are we going to do it in the time frame?
0: So so the bleeding that I was referring to, of course, was not the carbon dioxide emissions at a global level, it was the uh, critical need to stabilise our electricity system, our confidence in electricity system, our prices and everything else. We... Um, made the decision not to look at a number of things as we're doing our review, including a review of climate science per se. It's too big, too complicated for us to so get into that. And the government has already made a commitment at the national level, bipartisan commitment, to reduce emissions to um, meet the commitments of the Paris Accord. The Paris Accord itself allows for those emissions reductions to be re evaluated every five years. Never with the possibility of being reduced, but only with the possibility of being increased to see curve. So the rate of reduction in that quarterly transition trajectory that uh, I had up there is just what we modelled, not what we recommended. Uh, it's up to governments to make that decision. One of our recommendations uh, really talked about, but it's extremely important, there's really a real affirmation of the government's position with respect to the whole of the economy. We specifically recommended that by 2020, the government develop a whole of the economy
1: reduction uh, production. <coughs> <coughs> but the is going to have to be activated. How fragile,
3: we are. How
2: fragile we are. Josh Frydenberg is Minister for Energy and Environment, and his talk set all the newshounds rushing for a headline, which the next day was, Climate wars for the next election. You could have fooled me, as his voice was so soothing that I didn't hear him hint that he was abandoning the clean energy target. I did ha- hear him say, however, how costly electricity was hitting the poorest households very hard. I'm glad he knows that.
4: Complexity of energy policy is no longer an academic issue fought out between regulators and big energy companies, but rather is now a barbecue stopper with everyone looking for answers. So today I would like to respond to these concerns by addressing three particular points. Firstly, an honest appraisal of where we are. Secondly, how we got here, and thirdly and most importantly, where we are going and the principles that are driving our plan to get there. Our energy market today. Australia's electricity prices are high by international standards. A decade ago under John Howard they were the fifth lowest in the OECD. But as the IEA's 2017 energy report released in August, we have climbed 13 spots to the 12th highest thanks to a rapid increase not seen by many other OECD countries. It's a ladder you don't want to be climbing, particularly as it hits our lowest income households the hardest. The bottom 20% spend as a proportion five times more of their disposable income on electricity than the highest 20%. The resilience of our network has also weakened, with load shedding and blackouts in South Australia and significant stress at peak demand in both New South Wales and Victoria earlier this year. And when it comes to emissions in the electricity sector, they have fallen over the last two quarters as the consequence of the closure of the coal-fired power stations and flatlining demand. However, this transition to lower emissions cannot come at the expense of the reliability and the affordability of our electricity system. As Minister for both Energy and the Environment, the first time these responsibilities have been brought together, I am acutely aware of this delicate balance. Should reliability and affordability be compromised, public support for tackling climate change will quickly diminish and previous gains lost. And this is in nobody's interest
2: course, the main sob story was how hard energy prices are hitting Australian industry, and I wondered why they hadn't got into energy efficiency and their own renewable energy systems long ago. But one speaker was genuinely angry. Dr Cassandra Goldie is the CEO of ACOS, and she said, I don't want to hear that government is backing away from a target to reduce emissions. I want to hear that government is reducing emissions because the poorest people suffer more in climate disasters. She was one of the few ones who really got it.
5: Just a few years ago, there was a, a young girl that was interviewed with Sarah Ferguson, who an incredibly good expose on what it's like to live on very low incomes in this country. And the little girl, 10 years old, she's sitting there and she's talking about the fact that uniformly in her household, the lights do not stay on at night because energy is an essential service, but because of the budgetary pressures in very low-income households, this is one of the things that has become increasingly discretionary. So there is an absolutely essential equity issue here, and in terms of the reliability, there's the big (laughs) blackout, but there are households who are blacking out every night because they can't afford to keep the lights on So we take it incredibly seriously. We equally take incredibly serious and need to deal with carbon (coughs) emissions. Um, because in the equity sense as well, you look at any extreme weather event, it is the least resourced, lowest income people who will absolutely always fear the worst in that. And so we come to it with all of those objectives in mind. Um, and I don't think today is the day for governments to be stepping back today is the day I want to hear a message the government is absolutely on it um, and determined I think to listen to those in the marketing environment talking about the stability in the machinery to tackle each of these objectives including emissions reductions um, and that, that must be done in a way that enables the recalibration over time you know, how can we really predict where we will be With the the adaptations on technologies, which is is increasingly rapidly happening. And then to make sure that we do have detailed policy to deal with the equity issues. That's something, you know, you you alluded to, as we increasingly see, which is a good news story about the availability of dealing with energy efficiency in households, for example. That we don't allow that to be a good news story on emissions reductions and affordability for some of the middle and higher income households people who own their own home when the flip side of the population seems is that we've got people who are not in a position to benefit from any of that they cannot they don't own the property they are the renters so the policies that deal with um the rental standards obligation to ensure energy efficiency measures are properly built into design, that needs to be now. We need to be having that now put in place. So there are these big gaps in the environment, um, and um, I think having the stability of saying we are locked in on the machinery, the design machinery on emissions reductions, enables us to then put the detail into tackling the equity issues. And, and I'm very concerned. That with a message, you know, that uh, we'll just let the market do it. I don't think I don't think it, many people say that, that was that was actually gonna do it. The last thing we want to see is that the strongest voices talking about energy prices are people who are seeing climate deniance. Because that is not the solution. A it's not factual, it's not scientific, um, and it's certainly not going to get us where we need to be. How fragile we are.
2: The other theme was gas. I didn't hear anyone stick up for the communities and states where they have locked their gates on coal seam gas. Fiona Simpson, National Farmers Federation Chief, defended their right to get a better deal, but I don't know how she would prevent gas on farms polluting the water and putting short-term climate changes into the air the fugitive emissions from fracking gas or drilling for gas are substantial in the short term in creating the greenhouse that we're suffering from. Then we hear Bill Shorten. He's the Labour Party chief in federal parliament and he also seems to believe that gas is low emissions and that the moratorium states should reconsider. This just left me thinking how people in public life shouldn't get away with talking about gas as if it has no emissions. We need to do more to describe the path away, not just from coal, but from oil and gas as well. Here's Fiona Simpson, and then Bill Shorten. The role of, of moratoriums
3: and governments put moratoriums in place to, to respond to concerns of communities about different aspects of in different industries. And moratoriums are a very blunt instrument, and, uh, and uh, I think you know they're not a solution to a situation. They're actually a means of. Being over the last 10 years while I've been involved in this space and watching the development of the gas industry in Queensland and looking at how much has changed, what's happened in Queensland is that the industry and the government have actually responded in Queensland to some of the concerns that were there and put there by the community and the landholders. And those concerns are around concerns that NFF share in terms of access to landholders' land, equitable access, compensation, uh, and also around water and environmental concerns. So what I would say is that in terms of New South Wales and Victoria, those state governments have to step up and make sure that they are actually countering some of those communities' concerns and, uh, and, and, and operating in a best-practice way to make sure that that industry, if that's what's needed, can actually operate in those states. So it's, it's really unfair to blame the farmers and to say, oh, it's all about farmers locking up their land or potentially it's all about city developers who don't understand how it's working. It's not about that at all. It is about social which is so incredibly important these days. It is about understanding the role that a gas plays in the transition, that transition to, to other energy sources, if that's where we're going. I agree totally with you, Jennifer, that uh, we haven't actually had a discussion about you know, at the cost of, of decarbonising our economy. Finkel, uh, for us, was a roadmap forward. It was a, a set of solutions. It wasn't just one. We weren't just picking one list and the second list. We are actually looking at a suite of solutions which is actually what we need in so many of these wicked problems that we're trying to solve. And it's the same with gas. It's not just about throwing money at people. It's not just about getting stronger with the state governments. It's not just about saying, you know, we're not going to keep it. It's not about saying gas is so important if we don't have the dialogue with people, if we don't understand the community's concerns, if we don't actually talk to the communities that are involved on the ground to find out what's important to them and and how we can change that and I think that's what's happened in Queensland over the last 10 years. I mean, I think the the actual thing that, you know, we are in transition at the moment, Uh, we are doing but we're also looking at all sorts of different, we need to have a suite of tools on the table in terms of energy, uh, just as we do for everything else and yes, gas is Absolutely important. For some of our food processing, for example, and uh, and fiber processing, you know, gas is absolutely critical. We do not want to see some of those uh, facilities move offshore, (coughs) while the gas is too expensive. But we have to also find a way. Drip, drop, drip, drop. Wasting water's gotta stop. Drop,
1: drip, drop,
3: drip. Turn
1: that tap off quick. Federal labour supports the responsible development of onshore gas. Of course we fully understand and respect the arguments of farmers, environmentalists and communities concerning fracking, in particular in regions such as the Liverpool Basin and the North Coast. And I understand that it is primarily a state issue and subject to the rules of each jurisdiction. But I believe that federal leadership is central to securing community consensus and confidence around development. We build that confidence with clear processes, rigorous rules And the unequivocal statement that gas development does not come at the expense of water quality. In government, Labor introduced a water treatment for coal sand gas. And at the last election, we proposed expanding that protection to shale gas. This gives the community the assurance that the Minister, and more importantly, an independent scientific body will carefully consider the impact on water resources for every project before the development is approved. At the national level, we also have a responsibility to be measured in our language, considered in our actions, not opportunistically wading into fights with Premiers. I have been impressed by the approach taken in Queensland by Anastasia Palaszczuk and in South Australia by Jay Weatherill. I think that the comprehensive study being undertaken by the Victorian lead scientist will show there is room for the state government to reconsider its moratorium on conventional gas exploration. Stop.
3: 200 million years ago Lose from its crystal case My ice melting
2: At the summit I met Ian Learmonth, who tells us about the low-emissions project they're investing in at the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. They're branching out into the infrastructure for sustainable cities, including loans to social housing projects where they put in insulation and efficiencies to cut down the energy use. Ian Learmonth is the new CEO of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and he used the magic words zero carbon emissions to an energy summit run by the Fin Review today in Sydney. So he's leading in the right direction and you listeners will remember Oliver Yates who guided the Clean Energy Finance Corporation through times when the government wanted to axe them or make them invest in clean coal but they're still here and they've got $10 billion to invest and they've built up a lot of experience in financing and guiding projects that will help us decarbonise. So, welcome Ian, how are you?
6: I'm very well, nice to be here.
2: Ian, tell us how the Clean Energy Finance Corporation compares to other green banks.
6: Well, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation is Australia's, I guess, multifaceted green bank. We have, uh, as mentioned, $10 billion to invest in the the clean energy sector. And we can, uh, unlike many other green and development banks around the world, uh, we're national, many of them are state-driven, so we can invest right across Australia. We can invest in renewable energy, energy efficiency, and low-emission technologies. So that gives us a very broad palette to work with. Um, We can also do debt and equity and, say, everything in between. If you're a finance person, they might be preference shares and other things so uh, we have a great deal of um, well we have a very broad spectrum that, that we of opportunities that we work with so that that makes it a very exciting place to be already've we 've committed 3.4 billion of that 10 so we, look we expect to be around for a long time
2: mm. well would you like to describe the SunDrop farm project because when we last spoke to oliver it was just in gestation and you showed us a photo of it now it's up and running
6: well it's in construction you know it's part completed and it, it's one of those very exciting uh, renewable energy projects where not only is it is it generating power uh, through the concentrated solar thermal plant itself but it's using that power and heat that's being created through the power plant to uh, drive agriculture and uh, the sun drop farms people have a greenhouse of of you know fields and fields of of tomatoes uh, underneath a, a greenhouse which is has also been entered into a contract arrangement with coals so it's it's one of those very sort of clever um Combinations of both power and agriculture. So that's a that's a very exciting project.
2: I've heard people say, "Oh, when we take this to scale, just any any desert area near to a water source where you can desalinate the water and use it for the crops, (coughs) it'll you can take it to scale in China or you know anywhere Africa."
6: Look, there's been a lot of those. You know, very aspirational ideas. Let's fill the Moroccan deserts with solar farms and take a, a cable across to Europe and power Europe and, or, and people in Australia talk about that as well. Let's mm-hmm. cover central Australia with, with solar panels and power the east coast and the populated areas of the west. You've got to remember there's also various other challenges about the electricity grid. You know, Australia's um, population electricity grid is all, you know, around the east coast and it's in narrow and, and, and defined areas and the wind and solar resource, particularly is potentially out there in the in the bush, so that's the challenge: is, is bringing both the uh, the resource that we've got, which is incredible, mm. um, to the, where we need the, the actual power itself.
2: Yeah. Well, that's the exciting story that we tell all the time on this show, and I just want to get as many examples as possible. You showed also a photo of two dams; they look like mines that have been filled in with water mm. at, at Kidston in North Queensland. What's happening there?
6: Well, Kidston uh, is a, is another exciting. Project that we're working on uh, with a company called Gen X. So, the first phase of that in, uh, in North Queensland is the build out of a very large solar uh, PV plant. Um, but but um, next year, the, um, the aspiration or the idea uh, of the project is to use this disused uh, mine, the Kidston Mine, and turn that into a pumped storage, so a pumped hydro facility, which would provide uh, effectively battery-style storage like Snowy 2.0 and other hydro um, pump storage projects. So um, that will be stage two. So that's using um, already the topography that was created and left behind by the mine. So that, once again, another exciting combination. Yeah, it was
2: exciting, Liz, it's exciting, listeners just two huge mine sites which we know are a blot on the landscape but filled with water and now being used for something for the future. Look, also you mentioned that the government wants you to focus a billion dollars on the reef and on solar cities and then you moved on to something else and I thought, I've got to find out more about that. What could a billion dollars do... In that area,
6: well, look. The reef, as we know, is is in a very important um, focus of the government, and they uh, have said to us that they would like us to invest in projects in that area um, with a view to addressing some of the challenges that the reef has. And of course, I think um, you know most people know that the reef uh, is has the issues around the reef is is, due, is um, due to climate change and agricultural runoff. So a combination of those two features are very significant in the deterioration of the reef so we have been looking at both investing in um, renewable energy projects in that area but of course it's a global issue so that may not necessarily of course patch up the reef but also other projects around agriculture where they might be energy efficient agriculture or or other forms of of practices that, that we can invest in that are still compliant with what we do um, but may help improve water quality around the reef. We also see projects, for example, algae farms that are trying to extract, um, uh, you know, extract elements out of the water so that um, the, you know, the runoff is, is far purer and, and improves the quality of the reef. So um, you know, the government ha- has their sights set on us using capital in that area.
2: And what about the solar cities? Yeah.
6: Well, it's in fact sustainable cities, as it's known, and that was part of a, uh, a, a government undertaking to uh, ensure that there was capital, in particular, um, parts of Australia that uh, you know they felt was um, you know needed more investment, in some of those cities, places like uh, you know, Launceston and, and um, Townsville and other places. And it's you know, probably less challenging for us because a lot of the opportunities around um, you know, solar are quite near cities. Rooftop, for example, or when we invest in a new uh, commercial office building uh, somewhere, if it's particularly energy efficient or we drive them to be, say, six stars when they were only going to be five, then, then that will count against the sustainable cities uh, investment. So we, we, you know, we're really encouraged and we're doing well on that front.
2: Yeah. Well, look, I think beyond zero emissions audience would like to hear about projects beyond solar and wind. You know, we've been doing this for about six years. It's a think tank. We've published all sorts of reports on solar and wind, including concentrated solar thermal. But how are you now investing in um, other sort of agricultural sector projects? We've done a lot on land clearing and methane, you know, with the mm. livestock and the transport, the electric vehicles. What, what Where's the investment opportunity there?
6: Well, we are seeing investment opportunities across uh, manufacturing, agriculture, infrastructure. So we uh, we invested in the uh, More bank intermodal facility that that Cube, an inf large infrastructure company, had built out, which was um, taking trucks off the road and replacing it with rail transportation. As well as we require them to put a very significant amount of solar on the roof uh, there. Social and affordable housing, we've uh, been financing, which is...
2: Tell us more about that.
6: Well, um, w- increasingly state governments uh, are looking at, at, to, to meet the gap in, in social and affordable housing. We know it's, a, you know it's a terrible challenge right across the country. And we can provide low-cost, long-dated debt to community housing associations um, if... Um, if they also undertake to provide some kind of energy efficiency around it. So with St George Community Housing, we provide them with a uh, $170 million loan at a very low interest rate, um, but only uh, on the basis that they, that they use some of that saving, that interest rate saving, um, to, to contribute to energy-efficient uh, appliances, solar, um, you know, particular heating arrangements, insulation and so on. Um, so they use the, most, of, the, of course, the capital to build that new house, for uh, social and affordable housing dwellers out there in Sydney's west but the saving we identified how much it was over the the 10 or so year term of the loan and that money was put towards efficiency which reduced housing bills for for disadvantaged uh, Western Sydney. uh, dwellers.
2: This is very interesting because it's whole of society you're approaching now, not just those outback wind farms and so on. Look, I think I have this amusing prospect of all these very bright-eyed entrepreneurs turning up at your office with brand new exciting plans and you have to then put a sober eye on it at the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Can you tell us about some of the companies who you are getting up and running with projects about energy efficiency, for example? Well,
6: one exciting investment we've made is the the Melbourne software company, GreenSync. They're an entrepreneurial, new technology-driven company, um, and they're in the business of what's called demand response. So they they have technologies, uh, software-driven technologies, that allow um, you know, large industrial users and businesses and consumers to regulate their use of power. So, turning off power at certain times when they don't need it, reducing their power bills, and also be involved in hooking up, uh, you know, groups of you know, decentralised power generators who, who can kind of eat, contribute power back to the grid as well to kind of reduce power prices and regulate the grid. So, um, it's something that Audrey Zeebelman at AEMO talks a lot about demand response, sort of turning down and reducing power usage in places when it's not needed to stabilise the grid. So GreenSync, it's a new company. We, you know, we're a shareholder in it. It's still generating its revenues. It's, it's also got aspirations to, to roll out this technology in, in North America and in, and in Asia. We do see lots of entrepreneurs who, who come to us, particularly around electric charging vehicle infrastructure, for example, um, your new look batteries and inverters for the home internet of things you know these technologies that use ways of turning off your jug or your yep. heater or, or lights or whatever it might be at the, at the touch of a phone so there's a technology as alan finkel said is as much about it as climate change and i think that's really important
2: okay well just to finish climate change it's an existential crisis we're all citizens of this period of time and it's beholden on us to do the right thing and for me on the radio I just feel the thing is to keep calm and to be poised and to interview as many people as I can who are on the right track, I never interview the deniers because I think it's a waste of time but I noticed in your bio that you also connected with the Belvoir Theatre Now I'd just like to ask you, just to finish what sort of cultural voices you're noticing in the theatre or the cinema or books that are leading in the right way and I'm thinking, I hardly see anything like that, I see a lot of doom and gloom sort of films, dystopian things like this latest one about Blade Runner, it looks very dystopian and I saw one play here called Off the Wall Theatre and they just had this stage and they were at the Copenhagen conference, you know, ripping up, you know all the biodiversity was just going into a uh, shredder, you know, mm. and then and then the stage just gently went vertical and then they turned all out to be aerial artists with harnesses on and they were just clambering across these scenes of fire and flood and disaster and it really left a big impression on me because it was dramatic but it was a doom message. What, what, what has your experience yeah. been? Just well, what I comes see, to see,
6: mind? Seeing a lot of theatre and very proud to be a long-standing director of the Belvoir Theatre and the Belvoir is very conscious of of. giving a voice and a narrative to really important issues of the day. And they may be Indigenous affairs, they may be... Um, climate change in some cases, transgender issues as well. Um, And I think it's got a really engaged audience. And, look, there are other arts um, organisations that also have um, to try and tell these important stories to a broader audience. I think, um, and, you know, I'm I'm a clean energy financier, not a theatre writer or director, but I think it's important to tell these stories... Uh, in a powerful way, but, but give some sense of hope. Uh, without hope, I think, uh, you know, people kind of lose the will mm. to, to, to carry, um, to, to keep calm and carry on, as you say. I think there are a lot of young people who, particularly driven by social justice issues and climate change, and in fact the Belvoir season next year has, uh, I believe, a play which t- touches very strongly on climate change. So I'm hopeful that there's lots of young, aspiring writers yeah. out there that want to tell important stories like climate change, but um, but give us give us a sense of hope.
2: Thank you very much. So that was Ian Leamont from the uh, Clean Energy Finance Corporation. Megan Horton helps big businesses cut down their horrendous energy bills. Putting solar panels on the roof is not her first suggestion. She tells them you should lose weight before you buy the new suit. And many of them are delighted by the efficiencies that can drive down their costs before they consider even one solar panel. Megan Horton is a champion of energy efficiency. She's the executive general manager of Energy Solutions ERM Power and she was speaking to a big business audience at the Fin Review Energy Summit in Sydney today. She asked them the question, why aren't more businesses making energy plans? So, welcome Megan. You sounded frustrated as if all these people were missing something wonderful.
7: So we know that energy is the number one concern for businesses in Australia at the moment. Uh, you know, those statistics came out in the World Economic Forum recently. And last year it was the fifth concern, so it's definitely lifted up the list. But we know that only four in ten businesses make a plan, and only 20% of businesses in Australia even have key performance indicators or drivers that they put on their senior business teams to make them accountable to get better energy management.
2: Is this because energy's been cheap so far?
7: Look, historically it has been very cheap, but over the last year we've seen um, energy costs uh, double, electricity's doubled, gas has more than doubled. Uh, you know, we, we retail electricity to our customers, we've seen some of those guys face 170% price increase shocks when they go to recontract, so it's, it's a new game now. Yes, yes,
2: I heard a session yesterday where Rio Tinto was talking about their bill at some place and I wasn't going to really cry any tears for Rio Tinto but then I thought honestly if you were in that business it would be very frightening and I think there were also murmurs about taking business offshore and going where it's cheaper and I thought no, let's talk something about the solutions here. So tell us about some of the projects you've been involved with businesses or institutions where you've put in a plan. You showed us one about a high school but you know, just tell us about some of the good projects you've been involved with
7: so the the schools is one of my favorites because we also got the kids involved so i love that um but when we talk about how do you approach energy efficiency we take we say take it from an end-to-end process so start with the data what the data is telling you pull together an energy management plan from that energy management plan then you know which technologies you should be investing in. What will have the quickest paybacks or the highest return on investment? Then get a decent partner um, to source the product or source the product yourself from the market, install it. But then you have to measure and verify the changes that it makes because that's you know you can't value anything if you don't measure it. Um, and a lot of companies like ourselves, we offer on bill financing so that when businesses uh, go to do this, they're not deterred by the upfront capital investment they need to make because we've got a Solution for them as well, and then as you work through that journey, many of the customers we work with uh, like they might put in one product or two products, but then they'll keep coming back to the plan. And as they can afford it, or you know, cash flow investment wise, they'll do the next one. With beanley High School, this is my favorite. Um, they started with a data analytics, we sent out an auditor to do an energy audit. Is to get to get exact data for the site. Then we put together an energy management plan. Uh, We changed their lights. We fixed their power factor correction. We painted one of the roofs on their school with UV reflective roof coating. Uh, That actually meant that they didn't have to put an air conditioner in that building, and that's a big deal because it was in Brisbane, Queensland. Yes. (laughs) So so that was terrific. Um, And then we did a few other smaller things. We put um, sensor controls onto air cons so that every so often it would turn the compressor off but not the fan the kids don't notice that in the room but it saves significantly on energy Hol- tell us a bit more about that because we're coming up to
2: summer and aircon is a big thing not just for private homes but for these big places
7: Yeah. So we only deal with businesses, but a lot of businesses have got air conditioners. You can get pieces of equipment that are very easy to install. Uh, Pretty much it just attaches to the air conditioning system. Uh, You nominate how frequently you'd like it to cycle the compressor off. Usually it turns the compressor off for 20 minutes, but the fan stays on all of the time. So what that means is that you save a third of the power that you would usually save, but when you're in the room, you don't actually notice any difference because 20 minutes isn't long enough to notice a difference and if you don't notice that in Queensland you certainly wouldn't in Victoria in summer. <laughs> There's a whole other range of products that we put in there the very groovy one too though was we put a screen in the foyer of the school which showed the students what changes that they were making um, so if they were using less aircon or uh, you know turning their computers off yeah. with standby power switchboards and those are available on the market. They're yeah. excellent. <laughs> what it, We had graphs that were in real-time data yeah. that were showing them what they were doing and the results of their action that they were taking. Yeah. We, set, we set up apps on their phones um, where we sent through alerts saying, your school is just about to reach this peak demand. Go and turn a few things off because mm-hmm. in Queensland, your peak demand is a big part of the bill yeah. that you pay. So go and turn a few things off. And then the kids were incentivised in that if they took action and they save money they got $15 off their formal tickets (laughs) and they love that so um, one summer alone um, the kids just I think a couple of the kids from the student council went back into the school on the school holidays when they saw the demand alerter, yeah. turned lights off that had been left on, and they saved $10,000. Oh. So that's a lot of money for a school.
2: Oh. I would love to take this to scale and have you, a premier of a state, try it out on a state and have a big billboard at the local <laughs> shopping market and then people could be incentivised in all sorts of ways to um, just lower everything because it's all there. This is what you're talking about, energy efficiency, isn't it? Not putting in whole new wind funds or Tesla battery gigafactories and things, it's it's actually not using the energy.
7: That's right. Look, the, the cheapest megawatt is the one you don't use. Mm. So from a carbon abatement point of view and saving electricity point of view. And when we talk about some of these technologies, they're not expensive for businesses. A lot have um, under three years sort of payback periods. It, lighting, for example, 18-month payback period. Power factor correction is often a, a, a tricky... Um, issue that faces some businesses and that can pay for itself in six months
2: what, what, what would you do if a business came to you said look we're just going to whack a lot of solar panels on our roof and we'll be right, is that always the solution for decarbonisation?
7: Lots of businesses come to us and say we're just going to whack a solar panel on our roof and uh, we try and talk them out of doing that straight away uh, because it is a much more cost-effective and carbon-effective solution if you can have a look at the energy efficiency opportunities, decrease your usage, then you can right-size solar. A business will often save substantial amounts of capital. Um, by buying a smaller solar system. Um, so, you know, at ERM Power, we often say it's important to lose weight before you buy the new suit. So do energy efficiency before you look into what you should be buying in solar.
2: That's right. A lot of people in the domestic sphere are sort of conscience-stricken. They think they should have PV panels, but that's not suitable. They're in a dark area. like it's overshadowed. So I think that's really correct, you know, the energy efficiency. So let's go back to bigger players let's say industry people rising costs of energy must be prompting many of them to start wanting a tailor-made energy efficiency plan Are, are you finding at this conference more people are actually interested in that now you put it out there why aren't more people doing it are people do you think going to take it up more radically now because of
7: the costs I think, I think what the costs increase has done is driven awareness. So the fact that you can't pick up a newspaper these days without it being um, somewhere, you know, in a newspaper. So we're seeing more C-suite operators, so CEOs, CFOs, chief operating officers paying attention to the fact that they need an energy management plan. There's also some statistics that we've seen recently where it's just increasing as a, dis- as a discussion topic on board agendas um, around Australia. So the increasing costs and the fact that, you know, for some people they've tripled, like that school, it had mm. tripled. So they can't afford to ignore it but uh, the problem for businesses is that it's a very complex market. There are so many different policies in so many different states. There's so many different technology options around. They have, so- And it's a very fragmented market. So people will push solar and then a different company will try and push lighting and a mm-hmm. different company. There's very few of us who provide an integrated approach that's based on advice. Mm-hmm. So how we work with customers... We understand their business objectives because they may not just be wanting to decrease their energy usage or energy costs. They may have security of supply issues. Uh, You know, we have that mushroom farmer who is a customer that, you know, if they lose power for, um, I think it's as small as an hour, you know, that can wipe out next year's production because all their baby mushrooms die.
2: They need air conditioning to keep the mushrooms.
7: They need to be able to control the environment, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. So whether that's... um, Sometimes it's heating, sometimes it's air conditioning. It's a range of sort of energy consumption. Uh, So some people need the security of supply. Other people have got assets on sites that they don't even realise they could be generating revenue from. So a lot of, you know, prisons, hospitals, um, often water treatment plants or water operators have got a lot of standby generation if they want to they can sell that capacity back to retailers such as ourselves and we use that as standby generation if we need it. It seems to
2: me that I talked to the Clean Energy Finance Corporation person today and he talked about uh, uh, sustainable cities, you know that the um, government is asking them to invest in sustainability in whole cities and I think that would be a good client and we were talking before about um, you know hurricane sandy and now these recent terrible hurricanes in texas and miami and floods in bangladesh i mean many cities and and towns are needing some sort of power to turn on again quickly when when there's been a disaster and sort of decentralized protection for the people have you had any thoughts about that how you would manage a sort of a a project if it was a city rather than an industry or a client
7: yeah so um, what you'll see is it, the trickiest thing in creating sustainable cities is the number of stakeholders that you have to manage. So if you have one developer who's developing the city... Uh, so there's a moorland development out in Austin outside of Texas, which is just an absolutely terrific example. Like, you'll you'll even walk down the footpaths there and there's what looks like public art which like that look like sunflowers, but they're solar panels. Like, good. it's, it's, it's yeah. beautifully done. And it works off a district... Um, Energy system so that generates electricity, also produces cooling, pumps cooling through a great big pipe under the road, and the houses draw on that. And then it can turn over to be heating in winter as well. So, um, and it feeds medical centres, and you know, uh, there's another one in Queensland, Springfield. The trick is to understand uh, the different components of residential development and commercial development to know what sort of load will be needed and then what technology will fit. So you don't just want the generation technology to be on site, but you want to be encouraging the people in their homes to have electric vehicle charging, Mm. not just that they're charging their car, but if their car's charged, they can export back to the grid as well, and they do that over in Mm. Texas. Um, You know, you want people to have highly energy-efficient homes. Uh, You want them to be producing power either from mini-wind or mini-solar and have batteries, um, you know, on site as well. So it's, it's understanding the usage requirements, understanding the best technology mix, but what stops those things happening often is that you have to coordinate... Many stakeholders. So, if it's one great big development and one company's doing it, that can sometimes work. But if you've got to rally individuals, businesses, organisations in the area, governments sometimes, it's almost impossible to do.
2: Well, well, I think the climate change crisis, which is unrolling now much more visibly to people, is prompting that sort of thinking. What what, what sort of thoughts do you have about the um, future? Decarbonisation, rapid decarbonisation. What thoughts do you have?
7: So I think I think the uh, the two two ways that we're going to get there are going to be renewable energy. Um, you can't avoid the fact that the supply side is a huge part of the equation. I think. Uh, I think it's in a generation of energy in Australia produces about 35% of our emissions. It's it's huge. It's right up there with agriculture. Um, But it's the demand side of the equation that doesn't get talked about a lot, which is what can people do themselves. And I think there's a whole... It's not necessarily regulation, even though regulation helps because people have to comply, but it's awareness and education. I I think people want to take action. They just don't know how to take action. And I think now... um, um, because of the energy cost increases, we're seeing people ask the question, "How do I do it?" We're particularly seeing that with businesses, um, but but then a lot of there's a lot of cowboys out there who are taking advantage of it as well and doing the wrong thing. Yeah. It's about getting that trusted advisory. What
2: about apps on all our phones that tell us how much we've
7: saved? Well, that's And that's what smart meters will enable us to do. So power of choice comes in on the 1st of December, which means that anybody can choose if they want to have a smart meter put into their home. Um, They talk to their retailer and then that has to happen. Um, So, you know, you need the smart technology to feed you the data to change your behaviour.
2: Thank you very much. That's marvellously inspiring words from Megan Horton. She's from Energy Solutions, ERM Power. And what's your website again?
7: It's ERM Power. Thank you.
2: So that was my effort to bring you a little bit of the Energy Summit in Sydney. If you'd like to consider some action this week, I hope you all do, you know, have regularly got a calendar of action, climate action in mind, check out the Stop Adani website because there's a summit in Melbourne on the 29th of October at Fitzroy Town Hall. It's hosted by Friends of the Earth. If you're thinking about renewable energy for your flat or your house, check out One Step Off the Grid. It's a free journal with lots of inspiring stories. But don't forget energy efficiencies before you whack on that first solar panel. Please contact us if you have a climate action event or an article that you'd like us to advertise. You can email us at radioteam.com at bze.org.au and we'd love your feedback. Thank you to our guests tonight, Ian Leamontz of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and Megan Horton from ERM Power. Thank you also to the Financial Review for putting on the summit. Editor Michael Stutchbury asked this question. Can we solve the national energy crisis and our spectacular failure to reduce global emissions? Well, the national energy guarantee was announced the following week, and as the A Triple C chief said, every galah in the pet shop is now talking about energy policy. This is my contribution. The music tonight is from Ecopella. I felt. Mother Earth was not represented in the summit, and neither were the communities, and neither really were the renewable energy sources. So those songs, drip drop, ice tears, and remember Mother Earth, are from Ecopella, just to put those little voices in there to remind us that it's not all just hard business. Thank you tonight to Andy, Roger, and Jody, who are the radio team tonight. My name is Vivian Langford. Please tune in next week Monday at 5pm and stay tuned to 3CR. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions exports and industry, zero-emissions transport, zero-emissions buildings, and zero-emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of Community Action and Climate Solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.